welcome to another exciting episode of Hacker Public Radio with your host today, me, Dan, sometimes known as the man, but typically not, Washko, co-host of the Linux Link Tech Show of the very, very, very late logger, and just all around in Linux enthusiast, and I am going to be continuing my ongoing series of the Linux boot process today with a discussion of initRD and initRAMFS, how they work, how you can actually create them, what they do, and in addition, talking a little bit about kernels. But before we do that, let's, uh, let's rehash what we've covered in the past already. Um, we did an overview of the boot process originally and talked about one of the big differences in distributions is a System 5 versus BSD style of, init of uh, initialization scripts. Uh, Red Hat, Debian, SUSE, Mandriva, all being System 5 uh, distributions that make use of an init.d directory which and uh, a number of RC number.d run level directories which symlink to the scripts in the init.d directory and are typically initiated um, by the sysconfiguration file at boot time um, after in, in it has run so that uh, those processes in that specified run level are started or killed so to speak um, that is a little bit different than how the BSD style of script uh, of uh, initialization works and those are the slackware and the arch based systems in that uh, instead of having separate run level directories there's just a, a one rc.d directory in which you will find uh, a number of files um, that get called depending on what run level you are on uh, of scripts so uh, it's a little more um, a little less uh, contained a little more contained so to speak not as as spread out and in some cases some people find it a little more difficult to manage anyway we covered that in the first episode uh then we got into talking about bootloaders lilo versus grub and some of the differences uh, compared to those bootloaders and we decided i believe that uh the grub was the bootloader of the gods if i'm not mistaken and uh, how awesome grub is is actually its own little operating system and how the bootloader is initialized and by the uh, BIOS kicked off and then it has enough information to find uh, the kernel that you want booted and typically the root file system. Uh, I think, oh, and then we, we, we finished last time talking about Linux boot parameters that you could pass to the kernel um, to handle some some stuff like uh, identifying the root device, uh, passing certain parameters to drivers that may require initialization, turning off certain features like uh, ACPI um, or probing of, of PCI devices uh, and all sorts of different features there. So we discussed that in that episode. And now this episode, we are going to talk about the uh, initializing RAM disk and the initializing RAM FS file system disk and um, why they're required and what they're needed. But before we actually discuss those two technologies, we should probably take a look at different kernels out there. Uh, 
the discussion between mon- a monolithic versus a modular kernel versus what's called a microkernel and kind of a little overview of what those mean. Now, Linux, BSD, DOS, Windows are all considered monolithic kernels. Uh, that is, their kernel contains all the drivers, all of the operations and code to perform uh, kernel-related tasks, and they, they're compiled into the kernel, and the interactions with the kernel are done through system calls. Uh, so when we say that Linux is a monolithic kernel, I mean, initially it was designed to be a monolithic kernel. It still is. All right, so... Um, don't be confused when you hear modular because what a modular kernel is in the Linux sense is kind of a hybrid kernel or it is a monolithic kernel that has uh, some modularity built into it and uh, we'll, we'll catch up on that in just a minute but anyway the advantages of a monolithic kernel are typically less code um, so therefore it means less complexity in addition to having less code it means it's generally smaller in size and also with less code, there would be hopefully fewer bugs and security issues. Now, some people might already be saying, well, wait a minute. I thought one of the reasons of a modular kernel was that it was smaller in size. But we're going to get to that in just a second. Okay, so understand what we mean. Um, talking about a monolithic kernel versus a microkernel at this point. Um, some of the disadvantages of a monolithic kernel is because it it contains everything in it. It can be difficult to patch and test. Uh, if you want to patch the kernel or test it, you have to actually recompile the entire thing and reboot your system with that kernel. Um, also, if there's a bug somewhere in the kernel, because everything's inter- interconnected in the kernel uh, and the kernel controls all, this, it controls all the communication between the different parts uh, and it's not you know, separated or spread out, it's all in kernel land. It can, a bug in one part of the system can infect all other parts of the system or many different parts of the system and cause bigger problems. Now, on contrast, what a microkernel is, is the basically for a microkernel, only the fundamental tasks and drives, uh, device drivers are handled by the kernel. Such things as memory management, passing messages between processes and stuff. All other tasks are handled um, by the user space in the user space by what are called servers or user mode servers. So unlike a monolithic kernel where um, user space communicates with the device drivers and everything which is controlled, you know, the kernel does all that communication for you through system calls. Um, the microkernel only handles the fundamental tasks of um, the low-level stuff, memory management, passing messages between processes, uh, through the interaction of user mode servers, servers um, making calls to ports on the on the actual microkernel. Uh, some of the advantages of a microkernel are that it's easier to maintain, uh, and its uh, testing is easier as you can swap patches in and out of the microkernel, so you can actually unload or load parts of the kernel or swap out the actual kernel itself. Now. The disadvantage is typically a microkernel is a little larger than a monolithic kernel, has a larger running footprint. Uh, it's more complex to interact with. You're making port calls from user mode servers, so there's more emphasis placed upon the user mode uh, side of things to to interact with the kernel uh, and control different devices, devices and, and processes. And process management can be a lot more complex. 
So th it differentiates a monolithic kernel. Difference is different than a microkernel. Is is you could look at it and say more of the functionality of of communication between processes and devices is handled by a monolithic kernel as opposed to a microkernel. Um, microkernel use makes use of user mode servers to communicate between the microkernel and different. Uh, applications to control different devices and, and perform different things that would be uh, what the operating system would perform. Um, now, on the other hand, what you have a modular kernel is taking a monolithic kernel and breaking out um, some of the functionality of the kernel into dynamically loadable or unloadable uh, modules or modules or drivers. Uh, what this does is it it releases some of the tasks the kernel into dynamically loaded components making it easier to manage the kernel overall uh, it provides for faster and easier development for drivers since they can now operate its modules so you can load them as needed if you needed to update one you can uh, actually compile it outside of the kernel and load it into your currently running kernel um, since and and same thing with services now some of the disadvantages are are now when you add the dynamic level of modules that can be loaded or unloaded you're adding an extra layer of communication uh, so you're going to require more interfaces to pass uh, pass through and, and require more communication avenues within the kernel which opens up the possibility for more bugs um, in addition to that, maintaining those modules for the kernel can be a little more difficult because now you're not just maintaining, so to speak, the modules within the kernel space, but you can you also have to, if you're maintaining modules outside the kernel source and proper, you need to make sure that you keep pace with the updates made to the kernel proper. Now, you typically hear uh, People saying, well, a modular kernel is a more streamlined kernel and it should have a smaller footprint. Um, so why were you saying at the beginning a monolithic kernel has a smaller footprint? Well, what I mean that monolithic kernel has a smaller footprint than a microkernel is that uh, it's, it, it's compared to a microkernel, sorry. Um, not necessarily a, a monolithic kernel versus a modular monolithic kernel. Now, where the big advantage is to a, mono, a modular monolithic come into play are typically for um, embedded systems, systems that are lower end and where resources are a premium. You know, on today's quad core 64-bit systems with two to four gigs of RAM standard, you're really not going to probably notice a big difference between a modular and a monolithic kernel. Um, really. You're almost splitting hairs at that point. Um, so, you know, to be clear, loading a module dynamically into the kernel, you know, can incur some overhead compared to having the module compiled into the kernel uh, because you're requiring a little more resources to load that kernel in and maintain the communication between that kernel module. But, you know, on the other hand, this dynamically loading of the module can be offset the resources consume can be offset by the overall smaller footprint of a model of the monolithic kernel because you don't necessarily have to have uh, code that you're not going to use compiled in there for instance if you're you're developing a device that you know has an onboard flash device and uses ext3 files or ext2 file system 
you don't need the XFS drivers or riser file system drivers compiled into the kernel. You probably don't need uh, IDE devices compiled into the kernel. Um, you might not need sound devices compiled into the kernel or uh, video for Linux devices compiled in. So you can strip all that stuff out and in fact strip just about everything out and just only have the devices that you need loaded in as you need them. So it provides for a a smaller footprint of a kernel, but I don't want to say it necessarily makes it more portable um, without the addition of using the initializing RAM disk or the initializing RAM file system. Now, when you take a modular kernel and attempt to boot the modular kernel, because you've essentially stripped out as much of the device drivers and uh, resources and services as possible out of the kernel, you have essentially a kernel that's really only going to kick itself into production to be able to maintain memory management and begin the boot process. But typically a modular kernel is not going to be able to recognize your hardware devices, won't be able to find the block device that your root partition is on or be able to access the file system because those modules aren't compiled into the kernel. Therefore, you're going to need something like the initializing RAM disk or the initializing RAM FS. Um, those two technologies were created to solve the problem of loading necessary modules at boot time to initialize the system so that the root partition can be mounted and the actual true, you know, the rest of the modules and devices initialized. Uh, now, in an art deinitializing RAM disk uh, is generally a a file system. It's actually a a a compressed block image, usually compressed with GZIP, that's anywhere from 1.4 to 4 megabytes in size. Now, because it's a compressed block image, because it it is a block image. It's a fixed size, and again, typically of four megabytes in size. So therefore, when the kernel kicks off and is past the initRD image parameter, which is the path to the initRD image, um, it actually mounts the initRD image as a loopback device in, uh, in RAM. And what that does is then it allows the kernel to load out of that RAM disk the drivers that it needs to access the root partition to access, you know, the, the file system partition, uh, the file system uh, drivers in there to read the file system on there, like ext3 or riser or whatever your file system is, and thus continue the boot process. It's got its own, like, little pseudo root file system. A lot of them use BusyBox. Uh, it has its own little init in there, and it initializes it and allows the uh, system to continue booting at which point, after the initializing RAM disk is finished, it will then pass off, pass control back to the kernel, which can then, you know, begin mounting the original root file system and continue with the init process there. Now, some of the limitations of initRD is that uh, because it is a fixed size, the contents on the NRD image may or may not encompass the entirety 
of the space allotted to the block image. Thus, when it gets loaded into RAM, it's going to take up four megabytes of RAM space. Unfortunately, that four megabytes of RAM space is not retrievable until the system reboots. So you lose four megs of space right there to be able to kick off the modular kernel. Um, the amount of memory, again, cannot be freed until it's rebooted, unfortunately. Uh, in addition to that, because it is a file system, you have to load in the necessary module to read the file system contained on that image. So if it's an ext2 file system and you're using riser file system, you are going to incur the overhead cost of loading the ext2 module into your kernel to read the initrd file system so that it it can kick off the necessary um, loading of the riser file system to load your root partition and all the other partitions associated with your running system even though you don't require ext2 it's going to be loaded uh, finally as it is a block device the initrd image requires system administrator privileges to create as the initial creation of the device must be mounted as a loopback device so only uh, system administrators can create these uh, loopback devices now, to relieve some of the limitations of uh, the initializing RAM disk, uh, initializing RAM FS was developed. And unlike the initRD, which uh, the kernel loads as a block device into memory, the init RAM file system is loaded as a file into memory. And instead of a, a compressed block image, it makes use of a compressed CPIO image. Uh, and again, since there's no mounting of a loopback device, when you create the init RAM FS, you do not require administrator privileges to do that. Uh, again, since it's not a loopback device but a file, uh, one of the benefits of init RAM FS is the file can grow dynamically or shrink dynamically to meet the needs of the data stored. So if you are only going to require a meg or so of space for your loading uh booting of the kernel it's only going to take up a meg of space uh when you load it into the ram uh into your ram to be able to uh kick off the rest of the process unlike the init rd which is going to require typically four megabytes as it is a block image um because it's not a file system you don't incur the overhead of loading the file system module in there to read the init rd or init uh, yeah, RD image. Um, now, on the other hand, init RAM FS typically uses one of three uh, files or storage types, which is temp FS, SHMFS, or RAM FS. Now, RAM FS is the older name of this. It's an older shared memory file system, and it uses RAM, um, RAM space as the file system, but it does not have size limitations on it, and it cannot write out the swap. So, uh, you know, like initrd, once it's in the RAM, it's going to take up that space, but uh, it doesn't have any limiters on it. So theoretically, you can create an init RAM FS image to consume, you know, to create a loop to consume all your RAM and cause a crash of your system. Um, now, there's a newer, there's some newer. Uh, 
file system types like tempfx. Now, what tempfs is is a temporary file system. Uh, again, it does not use disk space, but it uses memory and swap, and that grows to shrink to fit the file system in question. Um, now, what the advantages of tempfs is it has size limitations on it, and it can later be swapped out to your your swap partition to free up the memory. Uh, in your RAM. Same thing with shared memory file system. It's just like tempfs as the contents are stored in RAM and can later be swapped out to your swap partition or, or parse out to your swap partition. Uh, one of the other benefits of the RAM in it, RAMFS is it's, uh, it's starting to allow uh, for the root device to be defined by the in, in it, RAMFS so that it can be on any storage media or and or crypt encrypted uh, this is going to provide incredible flexibility in situations where your bootloader is incapable of loading the root file system as it normally would or your kernel you know be able to pass the information properly to your kernel uh, as it stands right now uh, this is more for advanced uses coming down the pike than in, in your typical situations today but it's being designed in at ramfs was designed with the future in mind so that there's going to be far more flexibility involved um, to be able to mount stuff like uh, encrypted file systems and, and do other cool stuff uh, with uh, mounting linux or, or kicking off linux now on most linux distributions there are utilities to create the init rd or the init ramfs image um, appropriately called mkinitrd or mkinitramfs. Now, there are other ways to create these devices, and I'll leave that up to you to read the notes uh, because it gets pretty in-depth there and would make for boring radio, uh, even more boring than this episode might actually already be. But anyway, uh, you could explore those options, but typically if you're using a modern Linux distribution, uh, it will have the tools to use to, to create the uh, initrd or initramfs. Now, I'll briefly cover me, you know, I'll cover them both briefly. You can read the man pages, but typically, uh, you know, Ubuntu and I think Debian has now switched over to a uh, RamFS. I think uh, Red Hat and Fedora have all switched over. So um, MKNITRD is being phased out by essentially you call MKNITRD, you provide the image name that you want it to be named, and then your version of your kernel. And then you can find the version of your kernel by typing you name U, the letter U, followed by name, all one word, U name dash A. So you type in your kernel version, hit enter, and it would theoretically create uh, the initrd image. Uh, this creates an initrd image which contains the modules to load ID, SCSI, uh, RAID, block devices, along with the necessarily file, uh, necessary file systems, modules, and SCSI host adapter entries that are defined in etsymodules.conf. Um, there are some other options that you can pass to include or omit other module types. You know, look in the man page for this. Uh, but again, as I say, most distributions have moved on to init RAMFS. So, uh, you know, that's probably where you want to focus, right, your, your efforts. Uh, similar to make init RD, make init MK init RAMFS uh, takes the parameter dash O and you provided a file name. That's for the output file name. And it's in the, remember, it's not a VOC file system, so this doesn't actually require system administrator rights to create the initializing RAM file system. Uh, and then your kernel version again. And then you can, well, it will actually create that information based upon the configuration that is typically found in Etsy slash init RAMFS tools. Now, you can change, you know, you can create your own configuration directory in your home directory and 
specify only the options you want to use, and then you would call making it RAMFS with the dash C switch and the path to your configuration directory, which would uh, use that instead of the one found in Etsy. Um, now, be aware that in that configuration directory, there's a handful of files and directories in there, subdirectories, that are pretty important. Uh, first off is the initramfs.com file, and this, is, this specifies the default configuration on how the initramfs uh, image should be create, should be built and what it should contain, um, what devices it might need to initialize. Uh, there's a modules file in there, and it's set up similar to the etsymodules.com file, where it contains a list of modules that should be included in the image, one module per line, people. Uh, so if you need to include additional modules in there, just you know specify them in the module or yeah, the modules file. Conf.d directory contains hard-coded boot arguments, and where you can like set your root device in here, or the device to resume as the root device. Uh, you know, look at some of these files. Read the man pages for this, because um, the next two are directories. Actually, there's a hook directory and a scripts directory. Now, the hook directory is a directory of optional scripts to be used to create the image, but that will not actually be included in the image itself. Now, these scripts, most of these can be found in uh, slash user slash share slash initramfs dash tools slash hooks. You'll find a list of scripts in there, or you can um, put additional optional scripts in uh, the Etsy directory or in your conf directory, so to speak. Uh, the scripts directory is are also known as boot scripts, and that contains uh, scripts that are included in the uh, initializing RAM FS image, and that will be executed during the kernel boot before the root partition has been mounted. Uh, you will also find in the uh, user share init RAM FS dash tools slash init directory, uh, it will contain other stuff like the init script that'll be run and uh, busy box configuration files, I think, might be in there, or files. Everything you need to create that init RAMFS image is in there. Um, if you ever want to add or remove files from your image RAMFS file system, uh, you have to use the CPIO command uh, to be able to copy in and out file uh, options in there. If you want to add or remove files from your in an RD image, on the other hand, you have to mount it as a loopback device and perform your operations that way. And again, you are limited to the actual uh, file space you initially defined for the in an RD device. And again, that's typically between 1.4 and 4 megabytes. Most of the time, you are going to find a 4 megabyte file, so to speak. Uh, so just be aware of that. I hope that this has provided you with enough information to get an overall idea of the differences between a monolithic slash monolithic modular kernel and a microkernel. Uh, I don't think I specified this, but I, uh, some of the operating systems using a, a microkernel are, of course, uh, the uh, GNU Herd. Uh, OS X uses the mock microkernel. And uh, QNX, I believe, uses a microkernel. But uh, hopefully that provided you a little overview of the differences between those. It wasn't meant to be all-encompassing. So if you want to find out more information, you can look up, you know, very good write-ups on those on Wikipedia. Uh, also, what the uh, purpose of the initRD and initRAMFS are with regards to the kernel. You can find more information about those on Wikipedia, too, and in a lot of distro documentation. 
and in most books on the Linux boot process. Also, you can look at, uh, I'll, I'll post my show notes, and in addition to that, uh, the links that I use for those shows in the posting for this show. Otherwise, have a great one. Keep on listening to Hacker Public Radio. Contribute. There's more and more people coming on board every day. A lot of fantastic topics. But don't cover the Linux boot process because that's mine, baby. Mine. You hear that, Zoke? That is mine. Keep your fingers off of it. But keep on checking back. If you have any questions, concerns, or if you think I was wrong about something, email me at dan at the linuxlink.net or post into the uh, comments for the show. I'll try and check back as much as I can. Uh, and that's all I have for today. So have a happy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Hacker Public Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net, so head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.